Well, it is a great joy to get to be here tonight. It's a great joy to be in an English church teaching the Word of God, but it's a ten times greater joy to be in an English church that's actually our church. And my wife and I love being here, and what a great joy. So, delighted. Now, when we turn to this section, it's actually a great place to re-begin our study of the book of Nehemiah. In the Hebrew scrolls, the ancient scrolls that made up the Hebrew scriptures, our books of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually in one scroll, the theme of which was rebuilding. In Ezra's case, the rebuilding of the temple, and in Nehemiah's case, the rebuilding of the city walls. In both of those books, and in my mind, when I think about those books, the towering chapters are chapter 9 in both books, because in chapters 9 of both books, you have the amazing searching prayers of, of the leadership. And those prayers are absolute masterpieces of confession of national sin and personal sin that landed the nation in exile in Babylon. And yet, at the same time, juxtaposing all of that with God's perfect faithfulness. Those prayers are are really the towering chapters of those books. But when you land where we are, which is at the end of the prayer, you actually land at a deeper place in the book with a deeper question. The question being, how do we rebuild spiritually when we have been broken? It's one thing to build in stone and mortar. It's another thing altogether to rebuild spiritually. Much tougher. So actually, in my mind, when I think about Nehemiah after having studied chapter 10, I think I'm going to switch allegiance from chapter 9 to chapter 10 now. Chapter 10, a great, great chapter here. So tonight, if you find yourself coming out of a season of what may be sin-induced cataclysm in your life, whether it was your sin or a sin against you, And you're trying to think about, how do I move forward? This passage is for you. If there has been something that you have done in your life that has jeopardized a core relationship, whether your relationship with the Lord or maybe your your core relationship, and you feel like that that relationship is now hanging by a thread, and you want to know how to rebuild and how to move on, this passage is for you. Maybe some of you are coming out of a season of great uncertainty, and you're wondering, is the Lord faithful? How do I move forward? In many ways, this passage deals with, I think, the greatest challenge of the Christian life, the dailiness of it. How does it work day in and day out? So the question for tonight, how do we rebuild spiritually when we have been broken? Now, what I want to do quickly is I want to go back just by way of context, because our very first phrase in this section is citing an amazing context. But there's a particular part of the prayer of the Levites out of chapter nine that I want to highlight. What I thought I would do is I will read it. Now, forgive me, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, not because I'm an American, but because their translational principles are brilliant. So that's why I'm reading from this. Okay? But what I will do is I'm going to read from this. 
But I'd like you to listen as I read. I'm going to highlight four verses out of chapter 9. 16, 17, 19, and 31. And I'd like, as I read, I'd like you to listen for the key to unlocking any biblical passage, which is repetition. Listen to the repetition in these four verses. So in the middle of the Levite's prayer. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to thy commandments. And they refused to listen and did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou hast performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love. And thou didst not forsake them. Verse 19, thou in thy great compassion didst not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And then verse 31, toward the end of the prayer. Nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them. Thou didst not forsake them, for thou art a gracious and compassionate God. Three times in those verses, there's a phrase that is the actual interpretation of a core character trait of the Lord. His absolute faithfulness. That no matter what unfaithfulness, faithlessness the people hurled at him, he did not forsake them. In Hebrew, this is a very, it's, a, it's an interesting phrase. It appears three times here and at the end of our passage that we're studying tonight. So you're going to see poetic circularity in this. But in Hebrew, it's lo atzav, which means basically not forsake. See, the beautiful thing about God's character is that he is absolutely faithful. He will never forsake his people, no matter how awful They are, no matter how stiff-necked we are, no matter what kind of garbage we get into, there is a faithfulness about God that is faithful nevertheless, no matter what, even when we are faithless. And in fact, I have come over the years in studying the scriptures to believe that the cornerstone of God's character is that he actually loves us the most when we're at our worst. I derive that by looking at the cross of Christ, where the love of God was on public display. And the faces of humanity all around him were about as, as bad as humanity gets. And the love of God was there nevertheless. So in my life, I just want to begin by sharing a, a story that reflects some of these things where these people, these precious folk with Nehemiah are, are at. In my life, there was a particular season of my life that was absolutely the worst season of my life. And I'm going to focus on one particular day, Wednesday, January 14th, 1998, that I thought was going to be the worst day of my life. What had happened the weekend before was that I was an elder at a church. We had an elder weekend away. And unbeknownst to me, one of the other elders put forward a proposition that the church should no longer preach the word of God. With almost no preparation 
A poll was then taken, and every elder was asked, Do you agree with this? All of the elders agreed until it came to me. If you've ever been in a scenario where you are the odd person out, you'll know what happened to me that day. Because they were, they were asking me to turn my back on everything I believe with every bone in my body, that the job of the elders is to lead and feed, that the cornerstone of our church gathering is the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, our first assumption and our final authority. When it came to me, I said, guys, seems to me like you're asking me with no chance to pray to turn my back on everything I believe. And my vote is no. And I was the solitary no. I came home from that retreat rather shocked. It was as if my whole world had been turned upside down. The follow-up meeting was on the following Wednesday at high noon. That did not, the poetry of that was not lost on me. On that Wednesday morning, 4 a.m., I woke up in a cold sweat. It took an hour of prayer to get out of bed that day. When I got out of bed, got dressed, went into work, it was about 9 o'clock, and there was so much stirring up in me about this because I knew that that vote meant that at age 34 with seven mouths to feed, I was going to have to certainly change jobs, but probably more likely change careers. It was a crisis moment in my life. And the, there was so much going on, I actually took a prayer walk around the church from about 9 to 9.45, sat back down in my office getting ready for the meeting at noon, and at 10 a.m., pretty much on the button, the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and on the other end of the phone was my father, Dorman Sr., who lived a thousand miles away and who had no idea of what crisis I was facing that morning. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you picked up the phone. The Lord woke me up this morning, and I have been so pressed that I needed to talk with you this morning. And what I needed to tell you was this. You are the best son a father could have. And then his voice choked. And we talked, and my voice choked. Because, see, I I heard behind my earthly father's voice, my heavenly father's voice, saying words of affirmation and blessing that every grown man yearns to hear from a father. See, I, I learned something so precious about the Lord. I woke up that day thinking it was going to be the worst day of my life. I thought it was going to be the day of cursing. And it actually was a day of blessing. I don't even remember what happened at the meeting at high noon. But I remember this cornerstone of God's character. This is who our God is. He is incredibly faithful, incredibly loving. His love is a pursuing love and a hotly pursuing love. So now let's look at this passage, okay? So this passage is broken into three sections. 9.38 to 10.27 is the first block. Then the second block is from 10.28 to 31. And then... The third block is 10.32 through 39. So let's look at 9.38 to 10.27. Now, you might be wondering, why are we starting at 9.38? It's a little bit weird. I have to say, when they gave us this rota, I was going, there must be a mistake here. I realized there is no mistake. In the Hebrew Scriptures, 
938 is actually 10 verse 1. So this actually is meant to go forward. However, look at the opening sentence. The opening phrase is, now because of all this. Now that is a reflection on the immediate context of the prayer. But I would argue it's actually a reflection of the immediate context of the entire left-hand section of the Bible up to this point. Okay? Because really what he's saying is because of centuries of faithlessness on the part of the people. And the fact that God has nevertheless not forsaken us. We are now in a place of rebuilding. And there was fear and trembling in this place. Because how on earth were they going to rebuild and not be faithless again? And that was the issue. And so the nation was at a critical crossroads. And he said, we're going we're to stop the train here. And we're going we're gonna to create a declaration, a signed, sealed document. Because we're at this critical point. Two years ago, we here in England celebrated the 800th anniversary of just such a critical juncture. June 15th, 1215, the signing of what? Magna Carta between King John and the, and the northern barons primarily. Name of Magna Carta, Magna Carta Libertatum, the great charter of the liberties. And the reason we celebrated this 800th anniversary is because this is the basis of English common law. But the nation had reached a crisis point. Civil war was at stake, and it was, it was a great challenge. Sadly, uh, neither side upheld the bargain, and the Magna Carta was uh, annulled about three months later, sparking the First Barons' War. Now, because I'm both English and American, now let me give you an American example. July 4th, 1776. In Continental Congress, a bunch of uh, primarily English landowners gathered together and they signed the Declaration of Independence. I remember in high school I had the joy of going to Washington, D.C. and seeing that in the Capitol building. And Benjamin Franklin on that day famously said, we must indeed all hang together or we shall assuredly all hang separately. And so this was a, a, a crisis point. Well, in the nation of Israel, in the history of the nation of Israel, this is exactly the same kind of point, a crisis point. And that's why they were signing this document. And so what you see here is you see in verses 10, 1 through 27, you have the name of one leader, the governor, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Then you have the name of 22 priests. Okay. Then you have the names of 17 Levites, and then you have the names of 44 leaders. So you have 84 signers in all of this document. Okay. Now, as we were as we were looking at this, the thought occurred to me that you know the temple's been rebuilt, city walls have been rebuilt. But now the hard part begins, the rebuilding of the nation from the heart, the spiritual rebuilding. Easy to build in brick and mortar, much less easy to build in the tools of the heart. Why? Because the heart is desperately wicked, desperately sick. Who can know it? Only the Lord alone, as Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17, 
So what we have in these in this opening section is the signing of what I would like to submit to the theologians for consideration, the name of this document, the Declaration of Dependence. Because bottom line, these guys were really full of concern and fear and trembling. How are we going to not go the way of our forefathers and blow it huge? And they wanted to mark the day and they wanted to put their, their names to the document. And they knew that the only hope they had of not being as faithless as their forefathers was to depend absolutely on the only faithful person to any covenant in the history of the world, really, at least a spiritual covenant, and that is the God of the Bible. And so this is a declaration of dependence that was signed here. And it's really precious when you look at all the names. God bless Matthew for reading all those names. Not easy to read those names. But every single one of those names is precious because these are the guys that put their name on the line saying, we want to walk differently. We want to be on the team that is part of the spiritual rebuilding. So that's the first section. Okay? Now let's look at how we do this. How do we do this? Well, look at 10, 28 through 31. What's interesting about this signed and sealed document is that Nehemiah doesn't tell us what the document says. And history has not delivered this document yet to us through archaeology. So we don't know the contents of the Declaration of Dependence. But we do have a beautiful summary here in verses 28 through 31. And I'll read this for us quickly. Okay? Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. I think in NIV it says to follow God's law. Same thing. To walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, the key verse here is verse 29. That's the verse you really want to get, okay? Verse 29 is really the heart and soul of this. Their heart and their desire more than anything else was to walk in God's law. Now, we know from the New Testament what Jesus Christ would say is the heart of God's law was the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, known as the Shema. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have this precious single verse that the Lord himself said was the first most important part of the law. It is the heart of the law. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord 
is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now we all know this. We've all heard this since we were little children, many of us. The challenge is, how do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might? This is a lifelong thing. There's one thing that's crystal clear about it, though. It is an absolute thing. It is that the Lord is number one in your life. Your knee is before him every moment. And from your heart, you desire to love him more than anything in this world. When I was about to go away to university, my view of the Christian life was that, you know, God was a slice of the pie right alongside of sport and academics and earning money and all those kinds of things. When I committed my life to Jesus Christ in my second year, I realized he was the pie. He is the life. There is no other way. And see, really what's talked about in the Shema and what we are called to as Christians is for Jesus Christ to be the absolute Lord of our life over every single area. There's not a single room we are to withhold from him. There's not a single aspect of his of our lives that he does not own. Why? Because we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. He is Lord. And we are to live under his lordship, morning, noon, and night, every day, as Christians. How do we begin the rebuilding process? By his lordship. I've had the privilege of studying a lot about leadership the last few years. And as I've studied all through many different leadership passages in the scriptures, one basic leadership principle comes through, and I think it's a basic life principle for us. Before leadership comes lordship. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is the anvil upon which our godliness is worked out. This is the, the, the great truth. And the Lordship, of course, is based on who the Lord is. In verse 29, you have the precious, all-capital name, Lord. NIV does a good job of this. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in your English Bibles, what does that refer to? It refers to the personal name for God. Y-H-W-H. Now, the, you know what the theologians call this? They call this the Tetragrammaton. <laughs> I personally think that sounds like a Transformer name. So, I, so let's let the theologians have that. But the Jews, for them, this name is so precious and so holy. And so otherworldly that it's unpronounceable. And to pronounce it would be an awful thing. So the Jews have come up with a way of referring to this without saying it. And they use the Hebrew phrase Hashem, which means the name. And whenever they say, many times you'll hear an Orthodox Jew say Hashem has said. And it's the name and this is what they're referring to. But it's really important in your Christian life to... Study this for yourself and think about what is a good rendering of this precious personal name of God. Study this for yourself sometime. It's a study that you'll feed on for the rest of your life. I had to study this when I was teaching through Genesis 1 through 4 for a whole year one time. And I was translating from Hebrew. And I came to the first occurrence of this word in the Hebrew text, which is in Genesis 2 verse 4. 
And I know that the, that the term YHWH is rooted in the Hebrew verb Hayah, the verb of identity, which is to be. It's in the first person. And so the, the basic English translation for this is I am, which clearly we see John picking up in his gospel. I am. But when you really start delving into this and you look at the best Hebrew scholarship, there's hinting at something else here in addition to the I am. And it's not just that he is timelessly existent, eternally existent, but also that he is everywhere present. In this word is also a hint about his omnipresence. So now, as a translator, you're thinking about how do I render this in English? And so I was thinking about this and praying and saying, Lord, is there, is there a way? And this is where he led me. That I think a great translation of this personal name, Y-H-W-H, is I am here. I am here. Now I want you to think about your Christian life and how often in the dark watches of the night you may have prayed the following prayer. Lord, where are you? Anyone ever prayed that prayer? (laughs) I've prayed it many times. Probably enough to cover all of us on this subject. Lord, where are you? And his very first personal name is his answer to this. Lord, where are you? I am here. Lord, where are you? I am here. You cannot outlove this God, always available 24 by 7. And his personal name tells you this. He is not elsewhere and otherwise engaged. He's here. And for those of us who are Christians, the here gets a whole lot better. Okay? So we're going there in a second. So this is, this is his, his personal precious name. And I want to encourage you to study this. So really, how do we rebuild? The first step is by his lordship. And he is there every step of the way in the rebuilding process spiritually. You are never on your own, especially as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the next set of verses. We're in now verses 32 through 39. And I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, I'm going to read these verses again. And I'm going to ask you to listen for what I think is some of the most amazing repetition in any passage I've ever studied in the entire Word of God. Nehemiah is not making us work too hard to figure out his main point. I want you to listen for repetition here. Okay? 32. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, in order that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And in order that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. 
and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, we will not forsake the house of our God. So what's the repeated phrase that comes through all these verses? Anyone want to venture a guess? Would it be maybe the house of our God? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's amazing about this is I never in all my study of the scriptures have seen a, as many, in a passage of eight verses, a phrase that appears in every single one of the eight verses. Eight times this phrase comes up. That is compelling. This was the one thing that was on Nehemiah's mind when he wrote, and so it came up. And literally, what they were committing to was no matter what, to take care of this precious place that had just been built. More important than the city walls at this point in Nehemiah's mind was the house of our God and the care of it. It's absolutely remarkable, that amount of of repetition. So, I'm going to spend the rest of the evening just looking at that phrase, the house of our God. First thing I want you to note, the possessive pronoun. The possessive pronoun there is our. I've got to tell you, in your study of the Word of God, look at those possessive pronouns because they're huge. David did not write, the Lord is a shepherd. The Lord is a good shepherd. The Lord is Israel's shepherd. Those are all theologically true statements. David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. Boom. That's what you want to see. In John 20, the whole gospel builds to Thomas. When what? When he says, the Lord and the God. No. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Those possessive pronouns. See, that's when it gets personal. Because if it's not personal, it's nowhere at all. And if he's not my Lord and my God, then there's no sense trying to rebuild because you've got to start from the very beginning and build and become converted. You've got to know him. He's got to be yours. That possessive pronoun is precious there. Our. And then we get to the phrase, house of our God. Now, strap on because we're going to quickly go through a thematic study of the entire scriptures on this in about two minutes. Okay? So here we go. When Nehemiah was writing... He clearly was referring to Ezra's temple that had just been rebuilt, probably only a few yards away, maybe a couple hundred yards away. But I mean, it was, that's what he was referring to. It was the, and all of the aspect that he describes in these verses is really about the daily, nightly, moment-by-moment care of the house of our God. Now, I think what was in Nehemiah's heart behind this was 
the same thing that you see in David's heart. If you turn with me quickly ahead now to Psalm 27, verse 4, I think you see a, a beautiful sort of reinterpretation of or expression of the heart that Nehemiah had. In the beautiful section, Psalm 27, verse 4, the Psalm of David. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. Listen to the yearning in his voice that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. See, I believe that's what was in Nehemiah's heart when he was writing. And that's why this phrase kept coming up time and time and time again. But see, the whole point of what the house of the house of our God was to Nehemiah and to David, it was the place of intimacy. It was a place of oneness with the Lord. You could go to pray. You could go to hear the songs that were sung. You could go to hear the law being read. You could go for sacrifices. But all of that was about the place of intimacy with the Lord. Because Nehemiah knew the only chance we have for rebuilding and going forward is through intimacy with our God. Because if we don't tap into His faithfulness, we have no faithfulness. And so we've got to be close. The house of our God was the thread that he was holding on to for any hope whatsoever of being faithful against centuries of faithlessness of His people. And so what they were looking for was intimacy there. But this was a building of brick and mortar. 450 years later, roughly, give or take a decade, a very important man changed the view of what the temple was. Turn with me quickly to John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. This is where Jesus Christ did what he so beautifully did so many times, which is to take something common and make it amazingly different and beautiful. He took the temple that Herod had built over 46 years and he redefined it. So in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John editorializes. I love it when he does this. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, what Jesus Christ was talking about here was about spiritual rebuilding. Because the temple that was his body was a temple because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Holy of Holies of Jesus Christ's heart. Jesus Christ being the first original Christian indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And... His body, he realized, was a temple because one part of the Godhead was dwelling in him. And that's what he understood about his body. And then, of course, he was referring to the resurrection, right? Now, what does Paul do with this? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, nails down this theology, only this time it applies to us. I love Dan's question in Joshua this morning. Where are we? Great question. Well, this is where we are now in Nehemiah, is understanding that actually these Old Testament pictures have a New Testament reality for us in the spiritual realm. Okay, And so now read with me how Paul applies exactly Jesus Christ's theology, but to us in 1 Corinthians 
6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. What Paul is talking about is the single greatest truth you will ever see in the scriptures. What defines us as Christians is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul writes this in Romans 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That is definitional language. What this actually means is that the living God himself, Jesus Christ himself, lives in every believer, man, woman, boy, and girl, by invitation. But if the Holy Spirit lives in you, that means your body becomes something incredibly special, the temple of the living God. The idea that the Lord wants to come and live in us and, in fact, be with us 24 by 7 for the rest of our life. And, in fact, to impart his life to us so that he lives out his life through our life is the single greatest truth I have ever heard. They never taught me anything at Stanford that comes any close, anywhere near to this one. And they don't teach anything in Oxford that comes anywhere near to this, except when they're teaching the Word. So... This is the great truth. See, the only chance that we have of rebuilding spiritually is when you have the right builder in charge of your project. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the master builder. Now let's look at the last verse here. Last verse is very important. In classic form of Hebrew narrative, the entire story sort of goes on through multiple verses, multiple names. And then the great principle is in the last phrase. We saw this in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man scenario. Where you're wondering the whole time, where is Adam? And he's there in the last phrase. Classic Hebrew narrative. Most important principle of the whole thing is this statement where he says, Therefore, we will not forsake the house of our God. Exact same phrase in Hebrew as what we saw in the prayer. Lo atzav. The, the, we will not forsake. See, Nehemiah figured it out. That bottom line, if we have any chance of being faithful, it is going to have to be by the faithfulness of God. And so we're going to ask the same faithfulness that God unleashed toward us to be in us that we might then rebuild spiritually. So how do we rebuild spiritually? We rebuild spiritually by His life. Solomon got this in Psalm 127 when he said, unless the Lord builds the house, the the labor in vain, unless the Lord keeps watch over the house, the watchers keep awake in vain. See, if the Lord is in charge of the rebuilding process spiritually, he's the only one who can make it last for a lifetime. So, how? Can we rebuild spiritually when we have been broken? By his lordship, verses 28 to 31. And by his life, verses 32 to 39. And there is no other way forward. The first step is by his lordship. It's very interesting. The first step is actually not a step. It's getting down on your knees. And then you get up and you walk by his life. And that's how you rebuild. Now, to close, I'm just going to share a little story about what happened in my life. 
After that day of blessing, a few months later, as we worked through the process, the guys stayed firm in their conviction not to teach the word of God. I stayed firm in my conviction to teach it. And so I resigned on principle. And the elders in my life all encouraged me to go back into the business world because of my business background and believing in the principle that God speaks through a wisdom of, of many counselors. I bowed the knee. But the dream for my life at that point disappeared. And I faced the hardest thing. I had to go back into the business world in Silicon Valley. The Lord was extremely gracious. I got a, a job in one phone call by an absolute miracle of God. I thought finding the job was going to be the hard part. I had no idea. The hard part was the Monday morning when I began the rebuilding process and began in that job. Because, see, spiritual rebuilding, what makes it tough is that it's daily and it's hard. And my Monday morning commute at that time in my life was a three-hour commute from Fresno to the Bay Area. On my way in that commute, I drove through a town. Many California towns are named with Spanish names. The name of the town was Los Baños. Any Spanish speakers in the crowd who can translate Los Baños? It means the toilet. It's like not a nice term. All around the town of Los Baños are cattle feedlots. So the name of the town, the smell of the town, and I was driving through that. And the poetry of it was not lost because I felt like my life was going down the toilet. And there were many Monday mornings on that road when I drove and tears were streaming down my face because honestly, my dream had blown up in my face. And I had years ahead. And then the Lord did something. He put it on my heart to study Psalm 37 and memorize it. And so on those Monday mornings, I started then reciting all through the verses of Psalm 37. And then I got to verses 23 to 26 that say this. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he, capital H-E, delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have... I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. All day long he is gracious and gives, and his seed are a blessing. And in those words I found my way forward. I found the fact that the sovereignty of God had put me on his path and his dream for my life. And as I was reading and, and memorizing Something really precious happened in my little red Ford pickup that I was driving at that time. What happened in that red Ford pickup was such intimacy with Jesus Christ that that Ford pickup became holy ground for me. The intense intimacy with him on those commutes became one of the sweetest times of my life. And over a matter of months, I again was driving down that road with tears streaming down my face. Tears of joy. Because he had set my path, my feet on his path. He was rebuilding. And I hope and pray for each of us that as we go forward, no matter where we are, that He will be the builder of your rebuilding and that you will rebuild by His Lordship and by His life. Amen.